Latter-day Liberty Podcast, Episode 12. Hello and welcome back to the Latter-day Liberty Podcast with your hosts Matt Kent and Daryl Portsline. Uh, today we are joined by Representative Mark K. Roberts. Uh, he's a member of the Utah House of Representatives, uh, representing District 67. Mark attended B- Brigham Young University, where he earned a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and played for two and a half years on the BYU basketball team. Uh, I had to add that in there. Um, he was first elected as a representative in November of 2012. During the 2016 legislative uh, session, the one that just ended, he served as the vice chair on the House Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice Committee, along with sitting on the Natural Resources, Agriculture, and Environmental Quality Appropriations Subcommittee and the House Business and Labor Committee. And we want to welcome him to the show. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, so as we get into this, first off, um, it was kind of funny. We, we uh, first met you at the Libertas Institute's uh, Liberty Forum, and we got to see you give a presentation on some of the bills that you had presented um, during this legislative, this last session. And, uh, but it was fun talking to you afterward, and I just thought we could really quickly, could you give us a, a kind of a rundown of your history, kind of how you ended up in the position you're in now as a representative? How I got here. Um, yeah, so I don't know if it's a quick little rundown, but I can, I can tell you how I ended up in office. Uh, I was elected in 2012, um, and in 2010, they did the census. So I moved to Santa Quinn in 2007, graduated from BYU 2006, 2007, built a house. I was doing real estate and consulting and different things and built a house in Santa Quinn, thought we'd sell it. And then the market crashed in 2007, 2008. And so we moved in to Santa Quinn and, uh, and it, it's, it's been great living in Santa Quinn. Um, no problems there, but it wasn't really what we were planning on. So uh, lived there in 2007, 2008, you know, and everybody thought the world was coming to an end, you know, the big financial crisis, and then you have uh, Barack Obama running for the first time and against McCain that time, right? Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, that the whole Tea Party movement was going on and kind of building steam about that time. And Southern Utah County is a very uh, conservative area. So I moved out to Santa Quinn, and I, uh, my brother and I were actually, we, we started some little, you know, neighborhood book clubs with a couple other neighbors and stuff. And, you know, just thought, hey, we need, you know, to be informed and understand and, and principles and stuff. And, you know, so like the first book we read we had our neighbors read with us was the law, for example, by, by Bostiet. And that morphed into teaching these classes at uh, American Liberty Academy. It's a charter school down here in Spanish Fork on the original understanding of the constitution. So, uh, uh, what's his name that wrote that book? It's, uh, I can't remember right now. Anyway, kind of based it off that my brother's, uh, brilliant and he did the classes did the lectures and I just kind of helped set it up in different things and, you know, did help with a few things. But for the most part, he did the lectures. 
we got a lot of people coming to these things and, and word spread about them. And I went to my first caucus meeting in 2007, I think, right? It would have been, no, 2008, 2008. Um, and then in 2010, I went again and got elected. They just said, hey, you're that guy that did those classes. You be the, you be the chair. I think that's how it went. I can't remember exactly. It was something like that. 2010. Yeah, you be the chair. And so I was like, okay. Was 2010 the year Mike Lee got in? I, I want to say it is, but I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. So 2010, they're like, hey, you're that guy. You be the chair. And I'm like, I don't want to be the chair. You know, I'm just here to you know support, and I don't want to be the chair anyway. So they elected me as chair. <clears throat> and uh, that was a good experience. Got involved with the party a little bit, and that was fine. I, you know, I've always felt like you need to be involved, know what's going on be educated, um, understand principles and that kind of stuff. But I didn't really um, ever think, it wasn't ever in my life plan or nor, did I ever have any desire to go further than that. So 2010, they did the census and Southern Utah County grew and they redistricted the entire state and they created a brand new district in Southern Utah County where I live. No incumbent, nothing, brand new district new boundaries, everything. And so we're coming upon 2012 and people are like, who's going to run? And people are saying, Mark, you should run. And I'm looking at them like, you guys are crazy. I'm not running. And I did some consulting work for Mike Morley, representative Morley in Spanish Fork, and he was retiring. And he, re he used to represent half. So his prior district before everything changed overlapped into half of my current district. And so he knew a lot of the people there and stuff. And he's like, hey, you need to run. Uh, I know a guy out there who's going to run, and we can't have him. You've got to run. And this is like December, January. you got to file in March, right? And caucuses start in March. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. Had some other neighbors telling me, you need to run, you need to run. And I'm telling them, well, you should run. And Anyway, yeah, back and forth. Uh, I did not want to do it, nor did I ever think I would ever do anything like this. So finally, you know, I went to my wife one day. I'm like, hey, I'm not saying I'm going to do this, but I'm just thinking about it. You know, what, what do you think? You know, I'm thinking about running. You know, these people want me to run. And she looks at me. She's like, well, that's okay, but we're, we're done having kids then, if that's the case. And I said, Okay, well, fair enough. <laughs> and we had um, three at the time or two? 2010. I think we had just, I think we had just had our third. Um, five, seven, nine. We had three at the time. So, so we've had two since. So she, she didn't stick to her, her, her word there. So anyway, so I, I'm still contemplating what to do. You know, I finally pray about it and stuff and thinking about it. Maybe that's what I shouldn't have done. And so I'm like, fine, okay, I'll do this. I will put my hat in the ring. I'll run. I'll just go tell people what I believe. If they like it, great. If they don't, then no sweat off my back. I don't care, right? So I filed the run, ran against 
four other guys from Payson, all longtime Payson residents. And previous to this, Payson was split. Half of Payson was in one district, the other half was in another district. So now all of Payson is one district, and it's the biggest city in the district. So a lot of people from Payson were like, hey, now's our chance. We can get some good representation. We can get somebody from Payson representing us. And they had a, you know, a, a number of people from Payson running you know, that were longtime Payson people, members of the community. Everybody knew. And here I am, this, you know, uh, just barely turned, I don't even think I was 30 yet. I was 29-year-old uh, kid, lives in Santa Quinn, running. So I ran, we had convention, and I just figured, look, I'm going to contact all the delegates. I know how this works because I was a delegate. I'm just going to call, talk, try to get in front of every single one of them, tell them what I believe, uh, and we'll see what happens. So we get into convention, and I, I should mention too, so this 2012 was kind of a big year because the redistricting, and you had all these open seats and all kinds of stuff. So my dad was actually running for Senate. And my brother was running for the house too, and, and and they were the ones that wanted to run, and they filed to run far be- long before I did. And I was like, "Great, I support you guys. I will help you guys out. Whatever you need, I don't want to do it. You guys want to do it? <laughs> it's a family affair." Yeah, you know, and we weren't like super. You know, we we um, I wouldn't consider us super politically active. We you know we felt it was important to be involved, but anyway, they they wanted to do it. And so here I am. I'm running too. Fine, I'll do it. I'll do this as well. So we go to convention, and my dad loses to Senator Henderson, which you know is, is great. Senator Henderson's been awesome, and uh, my brother's running at the same time across the hall from me. So I'm in my um, little caucus meeting where they're having all the votes, and my brother's across the hall in another classroom, and they're doing the same thing. So we do the first round of voting, and we come out, and I'm ahead. And my brother's losing, and my dad had just lost. And I'm like, okay, great. What's going on here? We do the next round of voting, and my brother's losing again. You, you know, And I pick up all the, all the new votes. right? So, all, so the, the people who dropped off, I picked up all their votes. So I'm getting more votes, and I start stressing out. I'm... I'm I start sweating. My face is red. I'm, I'm getting angry. My brother's losing. My dad lost. I'm winning. It wasn't supposed to be me. It's supposed to be them. I don't want to go hang out with a bunch of politicians. And I don't know anybody, really, right? And I was just like, this is – I wasn't very happy about what was going on. And my wife's like, Mark, you got to calm down. You got to relax. Uh, you're, you're not supposed to act like this. You're be happy right now. All these people are expecting you to be happy. And I'm like, I don't know that I'm very happy. And so anyway, long story short, um, I won in in convention. I got 64% of the vote or something. So I didn't even have to go to a primary against these guys. And I was just stressing out. I'm like, oh my gosh, what just happened? What just happened in the next 10 years of my life or however long I'm stuck doing this now? And I don't even know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect getting into this. Uh, and I just, you know, here's what I believe. And, you know, I, I obviously I know how the process and government works and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the political side of things, 
you know, I, I did I didn't like that and, and didn't know what to expect um, from that perspective. So that's kind of how I got into this, and that was 2012. And then the next time around, nobody ran against me, and so I, I you know, it was I didn't have to do it. Yeah, here, and so this time, you know, people are like you got to do it again, you got to do it again. And I'm like, fine, I'll do it again. And I've just been taking this thing two years at a time. Two years at a time, we'll see what happens. We'll just see what happens two years at a time, um, see where we go with it. And so this year, I had somebody run against me in the caucus, and then we got that new law where you can just collect signatures and go straight to the primary ballot. So I won caucus convention, and now I've got to go to the primary against the mayor of Payson. He decided to run against me. So that that's where I'm at. That's how I got here. That's nice. how I'm doing this. I, I tell people I got into this by coercion. <laughs> you were voluntold. Yes. <laughs> nice. Well, that is awesome. Now, so that from there, that gets you to this last um, this last session. And uh, I did. We wanted to kind of this episode, just kind of episode, uh, kind of focus a little bit more on uh, the food freedom type of thing. And specifically, you had um, there were three specific bills that we were we were looking at. Uh, one was a constitutional amendment uh, or a, a proposal for a constitutional amendment for the Utah Constitution. Um, and this one, could you tell us a little bit about that one and what that was about? Yes, that is the right to food, is what it's called. Uh, and basically what that does is, and here's kind of where it came from. Uh, the FDA, let me see if I can find the statement too, that the FDA came out on this, that there was a, there was a lawsuit in Wisconsin, I think, or Ohio, you know, one of those States back there, uh, regarding sales of raw milk. And I think this farm had made some sell of raw milk across state borders. I can't, ex I can't remember exactly what the case was, but there's a lawsuit. And during the trial, the FDA basically made a statement in the trial that there is no intrinsic right to food, to grow your own food and acquire food from people who you want to acquire from or enter into contract with somebody to acquire food from that person. And I, I should find it, but you, you just read what they say and you're like, whoa, it, you know, if there are any rights at all, one of the most fundamental is to feed yourself and to find food to feed yourself and to acquire it from whoever you want to acquire it from, right? So that's what they said. So they basically don't think that we should be able to grow our own food or get food from who we want to get it from. They, they need to approve it first and then tell us we can eat it. Okay. So uh, the FDA made this statement. I, this is a few years ago. This happened. Uh, so there's been a couple of states who have run some, tried to run some constitutional amendments, the right to food, just clarifying, no, 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 you actually do have the right to food. I don't, I don't know that our – you know, the, the founding generation, the framers of the Constitution ever contemplated, you know, needing to add the right to food. You know, we get the Bill of Rights, you know, and Patrick Henry is a huge proponent of that. And, we, we you know, we, we're not going to, uh, you know, the big compromise of the Constitution to the ratific ratification debates, we, we ended up with the Bill of Rights. 
I don't think they ever contemplated that you'd have to enumerate or specifically say, no, you do have a right to eat the food you want to eat and get it from who you want to get it from. So that's the idea behind that. I think Maine ran similar a similar constitutional amendment. I want to say Virginia or North Carolina also did this year, this last year or the year before. Uh, and uh, I did. I was able to present that in committee, and it, it was they killed it in committee. They felt like it was going too far. <laughs> and that, <laughs> uh, to say we have the right for food. Yeah, it's just amazing to me. I mean, before the session even started, I met with the Utah Farm Bureau just to let them know, hey, I've got these bills. I know you guys are going to be concerned about them, but here they are. Let's start working on them. And you know, it's the food freedom and the 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 right to food constitutional amendment. They were more scared about the constitutional amendment than they were the Food Freedom Act. They were more, and I couldn't understand it. I was like. Wow, what does this mean? I mean, you don't believe that there's an intrinsic right to to food, to consume, to to nourish yourself the way you want to do it. And it basically boils down to they they feel like that they and the state and big agriculture needs to protect and preserve the integrity of the food chain. And that they will be the ones that will qualify the product for you before you consume it. So, so Mark, with with uh, with with that kind of stuff, I mean, do you think that? Um, I mean, I think one of the big one of the claims is that you know uh, we we uh, that we need to keep people safe, right? That's that's a lot. One of the one of the arguments that's always made for this type of regulation is that. That well, it's going to help keep us safe, and um, when it specifically when it comes to food, um, what what are some what are kind of some of the regulations that you've come across that that have been that are supposed to be used to keep us safe, and and how effective do you think those are? So the question is, what what type of what what have I seen out there as far as regulations that are supposed to keep us safe? Right. So I mean, we have our entire uh, food regulatory system that exists nowadays, uh, and I can't even begin to enumerate or talk about all of the laws and regulations. So you have the laws, right? And then we give both at the federal level and the state level, we give huge rulemaking authority to the executive branch agencies to further pile on rules and regulations right so it's 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 lawmaking basically by the bureaucratic branches and i mean take for example that the pile of codes that and laws that a company like um uh man we just got one of their restaurants in utah for the first time it's it's a mexican restaurant um they just had an, a big outbreak maybe five, six, seven months ago now. Uh, and a lot of people got sick from the food that they were feeding people in their restaurant. It, that's one prime example of, okay, that's the regulatory system. And people still got sick. And when they did get sick, it spread across you know, multiple states and hundreds of thousands of people, and you have a huge recall. Costco had a recall on uh, 
I don't know. I can't remember what vegetable it was uh, recently. And, you know, it's a huge recall across multiple states, hundreds of thousands of people. And, and you know, and this is the system that's trying to protect us. And then the other problem with this system that that the consumers are really driving this whole food movement because they're tired of what the regulatory system is doing to their food. It's and the and the production of big agriculture and you know what they feel like are are essential nutrients and um, you know ways to grow and produce food um, have changed where they can if they can acquire it locally from a local farmer who has maybe different growing techniques and the time that it takes to get from the farm to their table is reduced from months sometimes to a, a week max, right? I go, I go harvest out back. I go to the farmer's market and I sell it. We're talking a few days to a week max before between the time it was harvested and in my belly versus the regulatory system where it's it's harvested, you know, checked, double checked, shipped, packaged, ammoniated, shipped somewhere else. Um, uh, you know, then they put all these other chemicals on it to keep, keep them fresh as they travel. By the time you get it, who knows how long it's been in the system. Um, and then you have uh, you know, just barriers of entry to get into the market. So for example, in Utah, you have a cottage food license. So if I want to sell, if I want to sell, uh, let's say I've got a mean pumpkin pie that I make, right? And everybody wants to buy it from me. Well, I can't sell it to them unless I go get a cottage food license and I have to get, um, I have to get the recipe approved and then I can't alter the recipe. And then I have to save out samples and I have to get a commercial kitchen and all this kind of stuff for my just to go ahead and sell my pumpkin pie. And I talked to so many people who just give up. I talked to a lady a couple weeks ago. She's like, look, I don't even think I'm going to go to the farmer's market this year. I don't even want to deal with it. It's too much to deal with. And so then you ask yourself, you know, what's, what is the economic loss that we have here? You know, the, the, the economic benefit that would exist that is being – um, suppressed because of these policies. Right now, and that brings up another point. If 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 it's causing this kind of issue, and this is something I, I feel like um, we kind of beat around the bush when we talk about you know where these regulations and that come from. But when you know, in your experience in trying to push these um, these uh, this amendment to the Constitution through, and also like the other bills that you were doing for food freedom. Um, who were the biggest opponents to these things? And does it say anything about, you know, who these, these regulatory, like these regulations are actually benefiting? Well, so the biggest opponents was the Utah Farm Bureau and members of the Utah Farm Bureau include all the big agricultural players in the state. Um, other opponents were the, um, the uh, Manufacturers Association and they represent the manufacturers who process uh, and pasteurize milk, for example. They do the pasteurization and they manufacture it and ship it to the supermarkets. You had the, um, what is their name? Basically all the supermarkets in the state, their association was opposed to it. Um, you had the Utah Department of Agriculture and Food was adamantly opposed to it. 
I mean, just the, I mean, those are all the big agriculture players in the state or, or anybody that touches the food supply, you know, the grocery stores, the manufacturers and the growers or the producers. And then right. the, and then the regulatory agency. Right. So it, it, it kind of sounds like what, maybe what you're getting at is that, uh, the, the, people that are really that really want to see these some of the people at least that want to see these regulations stick around it's because they're they're directly benefiting from the existence of these regulations but you know it's, it's protectionism basically it, it's keeping their competition out of the market it's protectionism under the guise of food safety right and um yeah in reality ahead. it's it's no different than the tesla issue i don't know if you guys follow the tesla issue yeah, yeah we have have <laughs> it's no different than the Tesla issue in the food world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar, uh, similar principle going on there. So if I guess, let's just say that, you know, there are people out there, um, you know, I'm sure there are, and I know some of them that, that really are concerned for the safety of our food that we eat. And, you know, they really believe that these regulations are keeping us safe from, from bad food. Um, are are there maybe some other ways that that we can have safe food without the regulation? I mean, how do you answer these types of, uh, you know, the, this type of opposition to what you're trying to do? That oh, it's going to make the food more dangerous. What do you yeah. say to those people? So first, I tell them, look, I, I am a big believer of voluntary exchange, and nobody, if we pass this law, nobody is making you go to your neighbor down the road and buy the raw milk from him. You can still go to the store. And buy your pasteurized, you know, two uh, percent, whatever it is you buy, milk, and feel comfortable about it. And my bill doesn't in any way. You you can't sell the food uh, to a grocery store or to a restaurant. It's direct to the consumer, and then, and then the consumer can't resell it, right? So, I hear your concern, and I hear those concerns, and and I that's my response is. Nobody's making you buy this food, but there's people that do want to buy it. So who are you to tell them that they can't buy it? And that sounds, I mean, that sounds reasonable to us, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and therein lies the problem. Yes, that sounds reasonable to us, but, but then people get worried. Well, somebody, some, and so here's the other, my wife and I were talking about this today. Here's the other problem you have is, is you can give away this food all day long. You can give it away for free. And people don't care for the most part. There are those I've talked to and heard within the state and the regulatory bodies that would prefer that all food be inspected before it's even cooked and put in anybody's mouths. I mean, even your dinner food after you make it. But that aside, you can make food and give it away all day long. Then what about bake sales? You can have a bake sale to raise money from, for some charitable event. And that's kind of a gray area, right? Because now I'm collecting money for it. But it's charitable. And people tend to say to me, well, that's okay. It's charitable. The person selling it doesn't have any other um, uh, motivations to sell the food. But if it's for profit, then, then it's dangerous. Now it becomes dangerous because the person selling it has a profit motive. And they might cut corners or, or do something bad just to make the profit. And I look at those people. I'm like, you, do you own a business? Are you a business owner? Do you sell anything? 
you, you don't understand economics. There, there is no incentive. What incentive does a business owner have to sell a bad product? And the market, I believe, works itself out, right? If I'm a bad, and that's why we should let you know things fail. We shouldn't bail out banks and car companies and all this kind of stuff, right? Because let the market work. Um, and so that's been my response to these um, those questions when I get them is is just that you know nobody's making you buy it and and then we can talk about how in fact the food is probably safer uh and if i can go into that for a little bit if you want let's take for example uh i live in in santa quinn and in santa quinn there are huge orchards and it's uh, the red barn and there's apples and stuff it's a big thing they do down here and all, all these farmers are very angry with me for this bill they were – I was trying to figure out why they didn't – they weren't happy with it because it doesn't affect them. You can sell apples and fruits and vegetables direct to the consumer as it is. And he told me – he gave me the story about this this carameled apple listeria outbreak. And they're able to track the listeria from these carameled apples back to this apple farm in California where these apples, yes, they did have listeria in them and the, and the FDA found listeria – and uh, present on these apples, and it just about put them out of business. And he told me, he says, so look, uh, now somebody can take that raw product and alter it, and who knows what they introduce into it or how they cook it or what, and then they're going to sell it to somebody, and that person might get sick, and they're going to trace it back to me, the apple grower, and I'm going to go out of business. And I thought about it. I'm like, well, wait a minute. The and so here's how you get listeria from carameled apples because all kinds of people were eating these apples and they weren't getting sick from just eating the apple, the raw apple, even though the apple had listeria and tested positive for listeria. But what happens is when you poke the stick into the apple, juices from the apple come out and kind of coat the outside of the apple a little bit. And then that apple is dipped into the caramel and those juices are trapped between the skin of the apple and the caramel, and those juice of, juices have listeria bacteria. And then you take that caramel apple, and you put it in a plastic bag, and you seal it, and you ship it to some grocery store somewhere. So who knows how long this takes, right? Meanwhile, you have this listeria sitting in there between the skin of the apple and the caramel, just in a perfect, sealed in a plastic bag, in a perfect environment to, uh, uh, what's the word, um, multiply and grow at a rapid amount. Because the apples that had listeria that people ate raw, the listeria wasn't able to um, get up to a high enough amount where it, it caused people to be sick because it wasn't in an environment where you know that, that bacteria could grow. So now you have these carameled apples sealed in a plastic bag, put on a truck, shipped across the country, set on a shelf at a, at a grocery store, and then somebody buys it, takes it home. Maybe it sits at home for a couple days before they eat it. So we're talking maybe three, four, five, who knows how many months between the time that this apple was um, picked and it was eaten by the you know the, the consumer. Well, compare that to my wife who makes carameled apples quite a bit 
or, or somebody who may want to uh, make carameled apples for profit, right, at the farmer's market. I'm going to go and buy apples from, you know, our growers down here during the week. And maybe I'm going to go to the farmer's market on Saturday to sell my apples, or I'm going to sell them to my neighbors during that week. I'm going to stick the stick in the apple, coat it with caramel, uh, and the next day I'm selling it. They're going to take it home, and they usually eat it within a day or two. Otherwise, it, it, you know, it doesn't taste as well. It loses its freshness. And so th it's the, one of the big problems is the production and the manner of production and the time and different things that are introduced into the, the industrial um, production environment that uh, creates these situations where you know, bacteria can grow like that versus, versus me making it and distributing it and the food getting, getting consumed within a matter of days greatly reduces the chance of foodborne illness being introduced into the equation. Huh. That, and that is very interesting. So it, it actually, the regulation itself seems in that case to, to, be, to be contributing to the, to the <clears throat> issue, not, not helping it. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And so, I, I don't know if you could tie all of that to regulation. You know, part of that is part of the industrial food chain problem, right? Right, Shipping right. And all that kind of stuff. But yes. But <laughs> that, yeah, I guess I, I guess I would point it back to, you know, if local people were able to sell these things, it seems like it would be more common to buy local and fresher than, you know, these shipping for long distances and, and, and spending a long time in, in that production process seems like it would probably go down. But like you exactly. said, there's no real way to, 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 to tie that really to that. But uh, no, so there's a, a gentleman by the name of John Moody. I don't know if you've heard of him before or not, but He's been uh, working on this kind of, you know, with, with uh, raw milk and uh, what is it, direct-to-consumer um, uh, food cell and that kind of thing. He's been actually working on this on the, on the federal level. And uh, one comment that he made was that, um, you know, the, the one area in our life that is more regulated than any other area is our refrigerator and what's inside of it. It's, it's, all, it's all the food and the regulation there. And he also mentioned, though, and this is something that was mentioned at the Libertas Institute's Liberty Forum, is that, um, you know, on the federal level, this gets very difficult to, um, to fight. But on the state level, there seems to be some hope. And I was just wondering if, if, if somebody, you know, here in Utah or if, you know, wherever they're listening to this in their own state, how, how would they go about getting involved in this effort and how could we help, I guess, is my question. Yeah, good question. So in, in Utah, we have our website, foodfreedomutah.org. Go there, sign the petition, get involved. There's a couple of Facebook pages. Uh, you can find Food Freedom Utah and Farms, Food, and Freedom in Utah. Those are two different Facebook pages that you can join and get updates and talk to other like-minded people who want to be involved in this. John Moody, I believe he works for the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. Yes, that's him, yeah. Yep, and they were actually uh, very influential in helping me out with the legislation this year and the last year with my cow-sharing bill. And I would, I would subscribe to those guys. I would you know, pay donations to those guys, make donations, contributions, whatever it is, because they they are doing a lot of good work on the state level uh, to, you know, further these policies and try to, you know, get food freedom uh, throughout the country on the state level. 
they do a great job. And awesome. then after that, I would, you know, people just need to start putting pressure on their, on their representatives, their legislators. Right. And that's great. And, and we will get links to these all on the show notes page for this, uh, for this episode. That'll be on ldlpodcast.com forward slash 12. Uh, this is episode 12. So if you just remember the number 12, you can get, get there. If you just go to our website and, and stick that on the, the tail end there. But we'll have those on there as well. And, and in closing, before we, we wrap up, or that, is there anything else that you, know, that you wanted to, to throw out there? Last, last words, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess I feel like I rambled on for quite a bit. Hopefully it was beneficial to those, <laughs> I think it your was, listeners, yeah. uh, enjoy being on and discussing these types of ideas. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's an idea battle and we need to get these ideas out there and, and start changing the minds of, you know, those who we can influence. Yeah, and that's and we'd love to have you back on in the future because we, you, there are some other bills that you um, were uh, also uh, involved with, with as far as like you said the cow sharing. That's a fun one to get into about the rules and regulations around that, um, the bees, uh, beehives, and and how to keep those and and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, we'd love to have you back on sometime. But um, but we really do appreciate you coming on today and and talking about talking to us about uh, food freedom in general in Utah. I'm glad to do it. All right. That will wrap us up for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, don't forget to go check out the the show notes page for this episode. And uh, hey, while you're there on ldlpodcast.com, why don't you go ahead and just leave us some feedback? You know, I don't know, things you think we're doing well, things you think we could improve on, uh, or if you have suggestions for um, actual, you know, people we could have on the show, uh, people you'd like to hear from, let us know. We'll try to track them down and get them on here. Um, Any feedback would be welcome. So we do appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.